You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Everyone loves an underdog story, right? There's countless, countless movies, countless stories, countless songs that have been written telling the story of the underdog. Um, We love to root for the team or the person that has either slim chances or or no chance to win. Uh, Given no other context, more than 80% of participants in a study in the 1990s said they would rather root for an underdog than a team that was heavily favored to win. So no other context. Pick between the underdog and a team that is heavily favored. 80% of people say, I pick the underdog. And today, we get to read the account of David killing Goliath. And traditionally, it's been understood as an underdog story, right? That's why it is so well known in our culture, right? So if you walked in this morning, you've never read a single page of the Bible, you will know what I mean when I say, boy, that's a real David and Goliath situation, right? It's ubiquitous. It's, it's well known. It is the primary historical metaphor in Western culture for describing any individual or group who overcomes seemingly insurmountable odds to defeat an oppressor. But the biblical narrative is not primarily a story about human courage and effort. And in that sense, this is not a true underdog story. I'm afraid and I'm excited about the fact that we get to tackle this from an an understanding that is less cultural and more biblical, meaning I think the Bible has more for us than just David had a lot of faith and so he overcame great odds. And so let's jump in. Let's be reminded what's happened up to this point. There's a lot going on uh, in First and Second Samuel. And, and just let's be reminded that in chapter 8, right, Israel asks God, Samuel the prophet, for a king. And in so doing, they reject God as king, right? And that's what God tells the prophet Samuel. He says, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. And he says, you know what? Grant them their wish. And so Samuel anoints this man, Saul, who stands literally head and shoulder above all the other Israelites. He's handsome. He's a physical specimen. He is everything that you would want for a leader to be. And long story short, we come to find out that Saul fails to be a righteous king. A righteous king that God requires, but also a righteous king that the people desire. He fails to do that. And so in chapter 15, Saul's Saul's reign ends in the eyes of God. He's, He's still reigning in chapter 17, but God's spirit has been removed from Saul. Right, So he's no longer leading with God's guidance. And Samuel has anointed another. He's anointed David, who would come to take the king's place. The spirit has come upon David now, and David's reign will be instituted shortly hereafter. 
And that's where we pick up in chapter 17. And in verse, starting in verse 1, we have this great description of the Goliath. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line and battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood, shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, if you've been here for our time in First Samuel, you know that the Philistines are, are not new on the scene, right? There have been battles fought between Saul and the Philistines, plenty. God had given Saul victory over them, but Saul's decline in his leadership and his rulership has allowed the strengthening of Philistia. And so here they are back at Israel's doorstep, and among them is a champion by the name of Goliath. And he comes out and he offers essentially representative combat. He says, listen, instead of going full on two armies against, two, uh, against each other, right? Let's just, you pick one guy, we'll pick one guy, and whoever wins, that settles it, right? And of course, Goliath is chosen among them to represent the Philistines for good reason, right? I don't know about you, I grew up with the metric system, God's system, um, and, and so when I moved to the U.S., right, the whole imperial thing was crazy. Well, this is a whole nother level of crazy, right? But these numbers and this description here is given to us for a reason, and what we can come to find out um, as we sort of search through and understand history, we come to know that Goliath was impressive physically, right? That he stood at approximately nine feet, nine inches tall. We can just round that up to 10, right? Like you did on your driver's license. 10 feet tall. He's 10 feet tall. His physical stature is awesome. It's psychologically overpowering for both Saul and for the whole army of Israel. It tells us in verse 11 that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And adding to Goliath's overwhelming physical appearance as a fighter, he also carried an astounding amount of combat gear. 
and some of us would think about this and we're just going, look, uh, like, why are we talking through these details? Well, well, we'll come to understand in just a moment, but what we need to know in particular about this whole why the armor is described is that at this time, essentially, going to battle for an Israelite meant this. This was prepping for battle. It was, okay, there's the bottom of my tunic. I'm going to hoist it up here and tie it. Let's go. Right? So there's no, there's no flak jacket. There's no armor. There's no, right? There's, it's none of that. It's literally, I hiked up my tunic, tied it together, and I'm ready to fight. And here, they're looking at a 10-foot-tall giant, essentially, who is clothed head-to-toe in 125 pounds of armor, bronze armor. Some translations describe it as like scales, like, like the scales of a, of a dragon or a snake, right? He's covered head-to-toe. But it's not just his appearance, it's not just his armor, it's also the fact that he's carrying three giant weapons, right? A bronze scimitar, a curved sword that is slung on his back, and a spear, the head of which was a massive 15 pounds of iron. Some of you have been to the gym because it's January 7th, (laughs) right? And you've picked up 15 pounds, and my guess is you didn't think to yourself, I would love to have this lobbed at my chest, (laughs) especially if it was shaped in a point. And in this passage, we're presented with the longest description of military attire in the whole Old Testament. So right, the author of this account is trying to tell us something. He's drawing out for us a great description of Goliath's physical stature, his armor, his weaponry, and his shield bearer, all of which make him appear invincible. It's no coincidence that this long description of Goliath's outward appearance comes right after a moment in chapter 16 where we are warned where we are warned against paying undue attention to outward appearances. And here's why. Well, we come to find out in, in the remainder of verse, uh, chapter 17, and we're not going to read through it. I spared read that graciously, and I'm going to spare myself too. Um, so I'm just going to describe what happens. I think most of us kind of know the story, but we come to find out that Saul, the king at the time, offers up his daughter's hand in marriage to the one who defeats Goliath as an incentive, right? Now, this is ironic for a number of reasons, right? We, we said earlier that in chapter 8, the people of Israel requested a king. And one of their primary reasons for wanting a king was this, and I quote from verse 20. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the king that they wanted to fight their battles refuses to do so. And Goliath day by day repeats this routine. 
He comes out before the armies of Israel. He defies not only them, but he defies God. He blasphemes against the God of Israel, the penalty for which, according to Levitical law, is death by stoning. And as this scene is playing itself out day by day, David is sent by his father, Jesse, to bring supplies to his three older brothers who are serving in the army. And so he loads up, he gets all the supplies that are necessary, and he makes his way to the front lines. He drops the supplies off with the, with the supply manager, essentially, and he makes his way to the front line to see and to check on his brothers. And David is not in the army, not because he's not brave, but because he's not yet of fighting age. So that means that he's probably un- somewhere under 20. Most, uh, most scholars would assume he's sort of around the age of 17. And while he's there, while he's at the front line, this scene repeats itself. Goliath comes out, he defies the Israelite army, he blasphemes the God of Israel, and David essentially says this, he says, Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David watches this whole thing play out and he essentially goes, who's this guy? And everyone's kind of like, well, that's Goliath. He's the champion. And David essentially ends up saying to Saul, I'll fight him. Which, like, look, I, <laughs> I don't look at many 17-year-olds and go, you are inspiring from a physical warrior perspective, right? <laughs> like, here's this guy that's 10 feet tall, clothed head to toe in armor, and, like, essentially the guy from the cross-country team is like, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. And so Saul essentially looks at him and he says, yeah, good luck. Like, I've got some armor if you want to try it on. And so he tries on Saul's armor and and David says, look, I'm not used to all of this. And so instead of taking the armor and the spear and the weaponry of Saul, he shows up to the battlefield not looking like a warrior, but looking like a shepherd, which is what he is, to be fair. And that's where we picked up when we started reading in verse 42, right? It says, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance, sure. But the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Verse 44, The Philistine said to David, Come to me, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, 
and he will give you into our hands. Now this is an incredibly ironic moment if we have read the first 16 chapters of 1 Samuel. Right? We have one king who, although he has the dressings of the warrior, refuses to fight. And we have another soon-to-be king who, although he doesn't have the appearance of a warrior, we all know, will come to win the victory for God's people. We know what, we know what happens next, right? It's not unfamiliar. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone approximately the size of a tennis ball, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David defeats Goliath, raises his severed head for all of the armies to see, and the Philistines flee the battlefield in a moment. Now again, we, we haven't really touched on anything unfamiliar at this point, right? So what's the point of the story? Is the point of the story that if we, like David, have enough faith, we can slay our giants? Is the point of the story that if we're courageous enough, God will grant us the victory over our student loan debt? Some of you want to say amen. Look, the temptation with this story has always been for the reader, namely you and I, to read the story as if we are David. Right, well, of course I'm the hero in the story. Surely. And while that is certainly the most attractive option, it is not, brothers and sisters, the most accurate option. You see, in this story, we aren't David courageously slaying our giants. In this story, we're the scared Israelites, frozen in the sight of our oppressor. Looking at what confronts us, knowing that we are helpless, knowing that we are hopeless in our own strength. But God, don't you love those words? They show up in a lot of important places in the Bible. But God sends a righteous king to slay our oppressor for us. You see, the kings that we choose will not fight our battles for us. They may offer up some armor. But they won't fight our battles for us. But the king that God gives us, well, he will. In fact, he has. You see, in this story, David is not a foreshadowing of the people who would conquer their Goliaths with enough faith. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus who would conquer the Goliath of our sin and death. Listen, sin and death are as intimidating, if not more intimidating, than a 10-foot warrior covered in chain mail who wants to murder you. 
Sin and death are insurmountable. Your odds are zero on your own. Goliath is not a foreshadowing or a picture of our dwindling bank account or our, or our struggle to attain vocational significance. I mentioned a, a tiny detail earlier that might, might have escaped us. But the, the way that Goliath's armor is described, the way it, the way it should be translated, is that he, he bore an armor of scales. He's dressed like a serpent, brothers and sisters. He is the physical representation of our spiritual oppressor, who is the serpent from old. The serpent from Genesis 3 is present in Goliath, and he's present in our sin and in our death even now. And the good news, the good news is that instead of falling before the serpent like Adam did, and like Saul did, Jesus would be victorious over the serpent like David. And you know what? There's another interesting little detail. David crushes the head of the serpent. And you know, there's this wonderful moment of promise in Genesis chapter 3 where, yes, we're told all of the bad news about how our sin has brought upon us a curse that we can't escape on our own. But within that, in, in verse 15 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, we're told that even still, even though all of that is true, even though the curse is real, even though we'll struggle against sin, we'll struggle against one another, we'll struggle with death, we will fight a losing battle with death, we're told that one day a seed will come of woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus, like David, wouldn't come in the garb of a king or the armor of a warrior. He would come dressed like a shepherd. Jesus, like David, would not choose for himself a sword, but instead would tell Peter at his betrayal to sheath his sword because he trusted God for the victory and not in human weaponry. I love that detail, right? David says, listen, the battle is the Lord's. He doesn't win them with sword and spear. And then it tells us that when he won, there was no sword in David's hand. So, if we aren't David, how does this story apply to us? I mean, beyond just rejoicing in the fact that God has always been rescuing his people, that, that in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of their rejecting God as king and assuming for themselves another king, God continues to be gracious and giving them a king that will actually deliver for them the things that they actually need and not the things that they perceive they want and need, which is all astounding in and of its own right. How does this apply to us? But what happened to the Israelites? If we're the Israelites, what happened to the Israelites after Goliath was defeated? Pick up in verse 52. It says this. David raises the severed head of Goliath 
the Philistines flee. And then it tells us that the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. When David defeats Goliath, the Israelites are filled with courage. They go from trembling in a moment to pursuing the armies of Philistia. And so, brothers and sisters, when we are reminded that Jesus has conquered our sin and that he has conquered death for us, we should be filled with courage. Goliath is dead. Sin and death are vanquished. And now, you know what we get to do? We get to plunder the camp of the enemy. You see, all of the joy, all of the life, all of the confidence that had been stolen from us by our sin, we get to reclaim in the name of Jesus because we've been eternally set apart, saved by His grace. All of that's ours again. Everything that was lost in the fall has been returned to us and more. The relationship that we were always meant to experience with God the Father, with His Son, and with His Holy Spirit, as we walked with Him in the garden, we get to return to that. We get to reclaim it from the camp of the enemy. There's nothing left to be done other than to take back what was stolen from us. And in Jesus, brothers and sisters, we have victory, true victory, eternal victory. And so maybe now we can read Romans 8 with a little bit better understanding of what it is that Paul is trying to tell us in here. You see, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, tells us that there's no condemnation for us if we're in Christ Jesus. Right, that that battle has been won, that in the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh will be put to death and we will live in the spirit by God's grace. There's no condemnation. But then it goes on to tell us that there's going to be plenty of pain. That life is going to be filled with pain, that the creation itself has been subjected to this, this awful word, futility. Right, that existing in this realm is going to feel futile. But that God is the one who subjected it and that he subjected it in hope. What? In hope that the sons of God might be revealed. And so he tells us, look, I'm not going to... I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. There will be true and real pain as we groan inwardly, as we wait for our adoption, as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, as we wait for the return of those things that should have always belonged to us. But then he says this in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to those things? What shall we say to those pains, to those pangs, to those difficulties? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Listen, this is why David is incredulous when he's watching the armies of God 
The armies of the Lord tremble before Goliath. He shows up and goes, who's this guy? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he to accuse us? He's no one. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. You guys get that? Jesus is praying into God the Father's ear for you right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no Goliath will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And some of you wanted to say amen. Listen. If Satan and sin and death have been vanquished by Jesus, then this is the confidence Paul says we can have. This is the courage that we can live into. This is what should send us flying into the ranks of the Philistines to reclaim what belongs truly to God. So that all the world would know that there is a God in Israel. So all the world would know that there is a God among God's people, the church. And so listen, how does this apply to us? Well, we talked last week about three things that we want and that we're longing for God to do among us. That's that we would become a people of prayer. It's it's that we would become a, a more holy people, a people who reflect God's character, and that we would be a people who evangelize, who share the good news of the victory won by Jesus for us. Well, listen, I feel like, right, I, I don't know if it's because every couple of moments somebody runs a new article about the death of the church in the West or something, but I feel like we're walking around like we're underdogs. But David and Goliath is not an underdog story, and we are not underdogs. There is nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God. No ridicule, no amount of disdain, no amount of any of those things. And so we can walk into those spaces praying humbly, asking God to make us holy, and evangelizing boldly, knowing that the victory is already won. The elect are the elect, and the God who has called them is going to bring them to himself through his people. And so my hope and my prayer is that you will join us tomorrow as we pray and ask God to do the things that he's always been doing, namely winning the victory for his people so that the world might know that he is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together in your name, grateful to be gathered together underneath your wing within the fold of your protection, God. And we thank you for the confidence that we have in the knowledge, God, that you have gone to battle in our stead and that you have crushed the head of the serpent. 
And so, God, we're more than conquerors, not because we believe more, not because we have greater faith, but simply because we've been adopted into the family of Jesus. And God, we get to come this morning and we get to celebrate that victory at your table. We get to celebrate that even though you did not carry a sword or any weapon to defend, Lord, you won at Calvary. And so although it's odd and it's ironic to celebrate the tearing of flesh, the shedding of blood, Lord, we celebrate it because we know that in that we have victory. And we know that your son did not remain torn, did not remain bloody, but was resurrected in wonder and glory and is ascended even now to your right hand. And he is there now and he is praying for us that you might honor your promise to deliver him his people. And so God, may we come this morning, celebrate your table in that confidence. And may we go from here proclaiming that joy and that wonder and that glory so that all might be invited in to feast at your table. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the grace that it is to be called yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.